Oh, welcome to Pheasants Forever at Quail Forever's On The Wing podcast, recording on August 31st, which means we are on the precipice. Chad Love is packing his truck as we speak. He's literally packing his truck while doing a podcast. Well, not, not quite, but I could see him organizing his uh, shotgun shells in the background. And what is he organizing for? Tomorrow, September 1st, hashtag the uplands are open. That's right. Dove season, prairie grouse hunting in, in a couple of states. Uh, the, the opening day is in front of us, which means rough grouse comes next. Pheasants after that, Bob White quail, desert quail, and the world is going to be right again because we all get to go back into the fields with our bird dogs and chase the feathered birds that we love so much. So this episode, we are going to put our annual prairie grouse primer, which is available on our websites right now, Pheasants Forever and QuailForever.org, we're going to put the written Prairie Grouse Primer into words. And to put it into words, we have the three authors, the three folks that wrote this year's forecast. Uh, the editor of the Pheasants Forever Journal, Tom Carpenter. Editor of the Quail Forever Journal, Chad Love. And making her... Um, Frequent contribution to the podcast, punching her podcast card again, Marissa Jensen. Marissa, we'll start with you. Welcome back. Where is your first prairie grouse trip this season? Oh, my goodness. First of all, I want to do like a drum roll and like a applause and all these noises right now. We need like special effects for being on the eve of the, the prairie grouse opener. It's basically the best holiday there is. Um <laughs> I am hopefully going to be headed out to the uh, Sandhills of Nebraska this um, this weekend, depending on if the, the weather will cooperate. So that's uh, first on the list, kind of shake the dust off. And then I will be heading shortly after to Wyoming for my first sage grouse hunt. So that's what we've got coming up this month. And the, uh, the weather forecast that you're speaking of is a fear that it's going to be too hot later this week. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a hot one, um, 80s, potentially even um, lower 90s, and um, humidity can certainly play a factor, and then you get into the sand hills, and the sand can burn the, the paw pads, and just a lot of things to take into consideration, and uh, it's important for us to kind of pay attention when you've got the dogs, so right. we'll be watching the weather closely and see how many hours we can sneak in before it gets too warm. Well, I mentioned in the open, Chad, that I'm watching you pack your bags as we speak, which is only a little bit of a stretch because you've mentioned it three times in emails already this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so where, as we, as we record on August 31st, um, where are you packing your bags for? I am packing my bags for central Nebraska. So I'm going to head out tomorrow sometime and uh, just pitch my tent out on the sand hills and, and run the dogs by myself for a few days and see how it goes. 
And actually, a fun fact, my, my computer right now is being propped up so I can see the screen here on uh, on a couple of boxes of shotgun shells. <laughs> so so not far from the truth about packing the shotgun shells. I've got them scattered everywhere. Uh, and what, uh, what, what size? This is a constant debate with uh, me and some prairie grouse hunters. What size shells do you shoot at prairie grouse? Because... The de- I mean, it it doesn't normally take as big of a, you know, shell to take as you would for a pheasant, but it takes a little bit more than, you know, you hit a, a just tip a rough grouse wing and they're kind of, oh, you know, it's like the Monty Python. Oh, I'm down. It's a flesh wound, you know, whereas sharp tails, you get a little like you can just wing them and then they just pop up and down in the grass or some of the tougher ones, like they will run and be as hard as a pheasant to, to, you know, if you don't hit them very good, what's, what's your shot size? Well, it kind of depends on gauge. I shoot a 16 gauge a lot. So uh, in 16 gauge, I kind of split the difference between uh, six and seven and a half and I'll shoot straight sevens. Hmm. Uh, In 12 gauge, I usually, I have never had issues with killing birds with seven and a half shot. I use a little Hmm. bit heavier load, a little bit more velocity. But uh, for me personally, I, I've never really seen the, the need to go down to a six for prairie grouse. Hmm. Uh, carp, I know you've been prairie grouse hunting for many years. What, uh, what shell do you use? I, um, I use seven and a halves. And I tell you, the more, the more I hunt everything, the more I just use seven and a halves for most everything. And Chad can attest to this when we were out in late, late season in Kansas last winter, quail and pheasant time you know you, you sort of load up for quail but you got to be ready for pheasants and i tell you what those seven and a halfs drop drop a rooster like like nobody's business and um i think part of it is they're small they penetrate mm-hmm. and like chad like chad said you get a little higher velocity and um so that's what i use for prairie grouse too i i, I got to be honest for upland birds i'm almost with lead shot i'm almost a full-time seven and a half guy or trending that way so pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. What uh, what chokes are you guys using for seven and a half shot? I'm always using improved cylinder. Yeah. Same here. I always use, uh, you know, of course I, I shoot double guns. And so most of my guns are choked improved cylinder modified. Hmm. And Marissa's shaking her head. So do we have yeah. uh, three people all using seven and a half? I do use six um, pretty frequently as well, but I like to shoot steel. Um, I typically won't shoot lead unless it's the last thing I have in my bag. So sometimes I'll use six and it depends on um, when in the season to, you know, early season, I'll shoot certainly um, six, seven and a half, Um, but I won't hesitate six for sure in late season. Yeah. Yeah, that's true because prairie chickens are notorious for, you know, after you get a month into the season, they're hard to get close to. So you, you do need to reach out and touch them a little bit further. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Carp, where's your, uh, where's your first prairie chicken or not chicken, but prairie grouse, maybe it's Sharpies. Uh, I think it is Sharpies. Where are you going first? Well, I looked back in my records in my journal and I, sh- I shot my first prairie grouse, my first sharp tail in 1986 in Franklin County, Idaho. So I'm on my 34th prairie grouse hunting season. And uh, this year I'm gonna start North Dakota. 
I'm going to spend a week in South Dakota the second week, uh, sort of after their opener. And then in September, I'm going to finish off with Northwestern Minnesota Sharp Tales. And uh, Bob's sort of laughing here. I, readers or listeners should know I like to pop things on Bob during the podcast. And then he can't say no. So I'm thinking a super issue story next year is going to be <laughs> Grouse of the Northern Plains. So I'm going to start my... Uh, September is going to be sharp tails all over all the time. The bad, the sad news is I did not draw a Minnesota prairie chicken tag. And we might get into that a little later about Minnesota's uh, residents only prairie chicken hunt and, and the work that PF does with the Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society. But next year, I for sure will draw that lottery tag again. So this year, it's all sharp tails all the time for me. So this has become the not only the prairie grass prairie grouse primer podcast but it's the 2021 editorial calendar podcast as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and i do want to make mention um uh, we do have two partners for the prairie grouse primer uh sportsman's guide uh and responsible Re recreation hashtag responsible recreation take the pledge during this pandemic at responsible-recreation.org so Thank you to our two corporate partners for bringing you this episode. We're gonna we're gonna break down um, the states, the primary states that have sh uh, sharp tail, prairie chicken, and sage grouse hunting seasons. Uh, but before we do that, and we're, we'll break it down with each of the authors that that wrote about the particular state. Um, before we do that, I want to hear just a little bit from each of you about why you're so passionate about prairie grouse because this isn't this is one of those yeah it's a work responsibility but it, i know all three of you have been dreaming about whether it be chickens sharpies or, or sage grouse um outside of work these are birds that you're passionate and, and love and i could see it on marissa's face through the the podcasting app. Uh, so, so why don't you go first, Marissa? You're, we've talked on many episodes. You're an adult onset hunter. You love the birds that you hunt, but there's a sweet spot in your heart for prairie grouse, aren't there? Yeah, there is. Um, you know, they're, they're hands down my favorite. And, you know, when I try and think about why there's a lot of different pieces of it. Um, one is just the, the landscape that they represent. You know, it's just wide open spaces where um, I feel like it's some of the, the few remaining places where you can truly get lost, where you can head off in one direction and after an hour look around and not see cars, not see buildings, not see another person if you don't want to, you know, just you and your dog. Um, and, and that's really special. And, you know, when I was first introduced to prairie grouse hunting, it was in the sand hills of Nebraska. And if you haven't had the opportunity to hunt or even explore the sand hills of Nebraska, I highly recommend it. Um, you know, most people don't even realize that parts of Nebraska can look like that. Just mm -hmm. you know, rolling hills. Um, it, it's just beautiful. And you know, the, the species that are there, the grouse, the hognose snake. I, I think I get just as excited when I see a sharp-tailed grouse flush as I do when my dog points an ornate fox turtle. 
Um, I, I'm slightly <laughs> obsessed with turtles, so <laughs> it's just a really neat area. You know, it's prickly pear cactus. It's there's just so much to love about it. Um, you know, additionally, my first introduction to prairie grouse was before I started hunting, and um, I took my son out to central Nebraska and. Um, in, in hindsight, it was, you know, it was a little bit of a, a miserable experience, but it was one that you won't forget. And we had an extremely late season blizzard. Um, it was freezing temperatures in a pop-up blind, um, but we got to experience the, the greater prairie chicken on the lek. And it's just, and it's, there's no words to describe the, the lek courtship displays that the prairie grouse um, species display um you know the noises where it's not even a noise it's this feeling that you get when they boom and um the cackling noises that they make it, it it's just remarkable so you know i i can't pinpoint exactly why and i think you know my i love them both and i kind of go back and forth and you know sharp tail grass or, or prairie chicken what my favorite is and I probably would say the prairie chicken when I think about it, um, because that was the first species of bird that um, that I harvested for the first time, along with my dog, um, that she'd never you know, been able to retrieve a prairie chicken that we did together on a solo hunt. So it was, mm. it was a pretty magical experience. So I've never hunted the Sandhills before. Is it, in your experience, is it 50-50 distribution between Sharpies and chickens, or is one more predominant the other or what any feeling on that great question um you know and i i can't say for certain but just from what i have experienced it seems to be a toss-up um mm. i've found where they've grouped together and i know that you can find some hybrids i don't think it's extremely common but i know it can happen um what i really have noticed that if you want to specifically target one over the other I tend to find sharp-tailed grouse in more of the extreme hills um, where they're really tall, you know, re really struggling to get over them, or, you know, chickens tend to be more in the, the rolling hills. Um, so that's hmm. kind of what I'll, what I'll look for. And it seems to be true. That's where I'll, you know, I'll flush them if, if I'm in an area that kind of has a combination of them both. And we talked before we, we hit record um, you said something that really resonated with me. You tend to find Sharpies connected with rose hips as well. Right? Yeah, and that's that, correct. That's been my experience too, like hunting the Fort Pier grasslands. If I find rose hips, the odds are if I find a bird, it's going to be a Sharpie as opposed to a chicken, mm -hmm. at, least, at least in my experience. That's been mine as well. You know, I always try and target that. And I think I'm probably going to say this wrong. Um, I, there's a type of grass and I believe it's a love grass. Um, it's kind of got a purple top and it's a little bit short, but a lot of times I'll find chickens in those areas too. Um, hmm. But the rose hips, for whatever reason, it's it's usually the sharp-tailed grass that I found. And I don't know if that's just coincidental, um, but I do, anytime I see rose hips, I don't care if it's on the, the hill that's, you know, way on the other side. I'm making a beeline for that. Yeah. What do you think, Carp? You've hunted, how many years did you say you've hunted Prairie Grouse? 30? This will be, this will be 34 years, but between sharp tails and chickens. All right. So any truth to our rose hip theory? Yeah, I, 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 
believe in that wholeheartedly for sharptails. I'd also say what we call snowberries are the other one. Mm -hmm. uh, they're the little white berries. They're growing little little bushes about a foot tall. Uh, I, I find them, you know, you don't always find both on the landscape. Often it's one or the other. If you can find either one of those, you know, that they're sharptail magnets, uh, especially uh, late morning when they're out feeding. Um, those, so those are definitely a place to look for birds. The other, the other beauty of being in, in rose hips or, or in snowberries is if you have a pointing dog and a flushing dog, the grouse are a little, a little more likely to sit in there for a couple reasons. One, they're, they're a little spread out and feeding, but two, there's a little more cover. They're more likely to hunker in and, and hope danger passes. So they're good for a variety of reasons. The birds are there and it's a good place to hunt with your dog. Because yeah. they have they have a little place. The birds have a little place to hide. They might feel like they can hunker in, and that's when you have a chance at getting close to them out in the middle of that huge landscape that you're hunting. Carp, tell us um, why you love prairie grouse so much. Well, I I sort of knew this question was coming. I had a chance as I listened to Marissa's. Uh, eloquent description of why she does it. And uh, it sort of comes down to th three words for me. And one is barometers. These birds are barometers of the ecosystem and the health of the landscape and how we're treating that landscape and what we're doing to make it better and how we might be able to hearken back to some of those times uh, when the entire landscape was grass. And, and part of that is, is related to grazing. And a lot of these lands we hunt are grazed and that's how they're managed. We used to have bison. We don't anymore wandering the plains. Now it's cattle and they're barometers of good practices on the landscape and wild places. So, I mean, that, that's one reason uh, to sort of get into the, into the biological and the habitat. Um, the second is, is freedom. Um, Marissa talks about getting lost. You, as, as well as you can get lost in big woods, you can get lost out on the prairie as well. And you're just free out there wandering these grasslands, these huge places that these birds call home. I, I wrote about it in this year's Super Issue. Um, and I likened the prairie to an ocean and the waves and the swells of the land. And that's almost what you're doing. You're setting sail out in this huge landscape and looking for the, these little barometers of the landscape's health out there. And it's, it's quite a journey. And uh, the third one relates to relates to that, that freedom, and that's being out there with your dog. And, and the reason I love prairie grouse hunting with my dog sharp tails and chickens is you can see that dog work mm -hmm. when you are pheasant hunting your dog is you can often hear it or your beeper you know where it is you can see the grass or the the cover jiggling where the dog is um grouse hunting you know that dog is probably behind a screen of brush it's running through a thick edge on a wetland you don't quite know what exactly what it's doing. You don't get that joy. You don't get as much joy out of the same joy I get out of watching that dog cruising a sharp tail hillside with grass that is knee high to me, which is where the birds are going to be. And I can see my dog working and, and she's not very big. So you, you need that. But, but that, that's, that's sort of the brings it all together for me. Just seeing that 
being able to see that dog work nonstop and seeing how she, she does her work. Mm -hmm. Um, those are sort of the things that keep drawing me back to, to prairie grouse, to sharp tails and chickens. That's a good list. Did Chad, did, did they leave anything left for you to talk about? I was going to say, I mean, yeah. Me bringing up the rear, there's really not much I can say. Is it going to just say what they said? <laughs> well, come on, put it into your own words because I know. I, I mean, I just proofed a, a blog that's going to go up later today about your love for prairie chick or prairie grouse um, in general terms. Tell us, tell us why you love them so much. Well, I, I think primarily because they, they are such potent symbols of 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 a, a certain place. Uh, mm -hmm. You know they're, uh, uh, they're they're prairie birds, and, and you know that I have a, a longstanding aversion to trees. Uh, I'm I'm a prairie <laughs> rat. I was I was born and raised on the Southern Plains. I live in Oklahoma, which is a state that at one time had uh, large populations of both lesser and prairie chickens, or lesser and greater prairie chickens. You know that this is a bird that that was uh, hunted commercially. You know millions of them were were taken off the the Southern Plains. Uh, back around the turn of the century, and now I live in a state where there is not a hunting season on either greater or lessers, hmm. and so it's it's a it's both a you know sort of a symbol of place and a symbol of of a, a perfect representation of the the place in which they live, and also a cautionary tale I think, and yeah. uh, uh, I just uh, I, I'm just fascinated with them. Uh, you know I'm I'm also a, a, a sort of a student of history, and uh, these birds are to me represent something that that we have kind of lost, but you can still find in these isolated little pockets. And, uh, you know, going back to what both Marissa and Carpa said, uh, you know, it, it rep represents a, a, a freedom that uh, is becoming increasingly hard to find now. Yeah, really, really well said. I agree with all three of you on, on all those points. And I'll add, I love to eat them too. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I, and we'll, we'll circle back, uh, and get your favorite ways to prepare them at the end, but, uh, they get a bad rap on the plate and with a little care, they can be extraordinary. So we'll, we'll circle back on, on table fair of Prairie Grouse after we do a for the state by state fair forecast. But I did want to, you know, tack on to, to Carp's mention of the barometer of kind of the habitat and the landscape, um, thought that he that he led off his his love of prairie grouse with, and you know really that's that's why we're talking about um, the prairie grouse primer on pheasants forever and quail forever's podcast. Our mission of creating habitat for grassland habitat for pheasants for quail benefits pollinators, monarchs, as we've talked about over, you know, the 70 plus episodes of this podcast, but it also benefits sharp tails and prairie chickens and sage grouse. And we're intimately involved with the sage grouse initiative and the lesser prairie chicken initiative. And, you know, it's that, uh, that life lesson we all learned in third grade about the web of life and how everything's connected. And the fact that our name says pheasants forever or quail forever. And that's our species that we're really trying to influence. When we put grass on the landscape, um, it's really making a positive impact, whether it be CRP, a chapter habitat project, a land acquisition, um, LWCF funding, you name it. It's having benefits for greater prairie chickens, lesser prairie chickens, sharp tails, and um, 
and really specifically sage grouse too. Uh, a lot of people don't know how, how involved we are on the sage grouse front. And um, we're, we're doing a tremendous amount. We have, I think it's upwards of 18 biologists working specifically on sage grouse in the Western United States. All right, so without further ado, let's do a uh, quick hitters, state by state. We've got eight states lined up. Did I get that right? Um, yeah, eight states lined up that uh, um, the three of you wrote about. We're going to kick it off with a state that opens up tomorrow. Uh, big sky country. Carpenter, you wrote about uh, Montana. Tom, tell us about the uh, the forecast for the the great big wide open of uh, of Montana. Well, Montana is big enough that it's divided into regions, and we we do this report via region. Uh, region seven is the southeast, six is the northeast, and four is the north central. Those are really the main sharp tail areas of Montana, uh, east of the Continental Divide. You can't hunt sharp tails west of the Continental Divide or sage grouse for that matter in Montana uh, due to the Colombian sharptails being out there. So um, tomorrow it opens, September 1st. And, you, you know, you can go to the Prairie Grouse Fort Primer on pheasantsforever.org and see all the details. Um, the bottom line is last year was very wet. It had the effect of producing a lot of grass, a lot of good grass that went into the winter and that was standing as residual grass this spring. Um, springtime was not especially wet or cold, especially as we got into June. Seems like a good hatch and it's going to be a good year for Montana sharptails. Uh, like I said, you can go in and read all the details in, in the primer, in the forecast, but that's the bottom line. Uh, winter was not hard, especially hard on the grouse. It was a hard winter, but if anything is engineered by nature to withstand a prairie winter, it's sharp-tailed grouse and sage grouse. That's where they evolved. So winter was not really a factor. Last year's rains helped. Uh, habitat looks good. We've had a good, although it's been a hot August, it's starting to cool down now. It's going to be a good year to be in Montana uh, for sharp tails. How many of you know people that are literally driving right now to go to Montana? Anybody? I know a couple. Yeah, I know a couple too. Montana is if folks are listening, and whether it be prairie grouse, huns, or pheasants, if you haven't been to Montana, figure out a way to get there. Get it on your list. It is, it's just, uh, Chad, you talked about prairie grouse and the how you know quintessential they are with the places where they live. Montana and prairie grouse are, you know, like, peanut butter and jelly. They yeah, just, absolutely. they're wonderful to hunt out there. I, I shot my very first sage grouse in Montana. And uh, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a memorable experience, something I'll never forget. Yeah. Final, final note about Montana, you know, each of those regions has its own upland game bird enhancement habitat specialist, biologist. 
and they are the ones that contributed to this report. Uh, Justin Hughes, Ken Plourd, and Evan Rogers. That's their job to help hunters. And uh, they know their areas. They know their birds. They're willing to help you. That might be a place to start if you want to head out to Montana. And, and I'll also say this, just because you're not, if you're not on the road the day before September 1st, that doesn't mean <laughs> there's still going to be plenty of sharp tails. <laughs> And plenty of places to hunt in Montana. Um, you don't have to be there opening day. Uh, it's like any upland hunting. There's still a lot of season left and a lot of birds. And uh, it's going to be a good year to get out there. All right. Also opening up on September 1st, Marissa's home state. Tell us about uh, uh, your favorite state, Nebraska. Well, you know, I feel like a broken record sometimes when I say this because I'm such a Husker fan, but I got to give a go big red before we start. <laughs> um, you know, being from Nebraska and, and living here, I have a, a soft spot for the state in my heart and the the birds that call it home and specifically the prairie grouse. Um, so our season, like you mentioned, it starts tomorrow. Um, so hunters, um, I'm sure we'll be traveling far and wide to come visit the great state. Um, it is going to be a little bit warm. So just kind of prepare for that if you're planning on visiting or, you know, even resident, um, you know, pack plenty of water and you can reference our, um, our summer heat article um, blog mm -hmm. on Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever website um, to look for tips on how to keep an eye on your pup. Um, but as far as weather from the last season, you know, we, we had a fairly typical winter um, no mass mortalities were reported and really the, the overall survival rate, um, over winter was great. And, you know, something to kind of keep in mind is that prairie grouse has, they've really adapted to withstand winters in the Midwest. Um, you know, one thing that's kind of fun to look at if, if people haven't experienced prairie grouse in person before is, um, I like to call them their, their furry legs and, you know, obviously their feathers, but they look like, you know, little furry legs and, I mean, I think some people even try to predict the severity of what weather, um, depending on how far down those feathers go on their legs. Um, and even their feet have, you know, little traction that look like little snowshoes. So they're really adapted for it. And that's something that it, it's certainly important to keep in mind when you're looking at populations, but um, they're made for this area and can handle a decent amount. Um, spring to early summer, the we experienced some you know dry and cool weather. However, we did have enough moisture to provide ample vegetation and cover for the birds. Um, getting into June in the summer is where the wild card's going to be uh, for some of the population, just with a pretty intense heat wave that we experienced with high 90s. Um, we definitely continued that trend a little bit uh, longer into summer than most of us would like, but. Overall, we should have a um, very strong population this year, if not um, looking a little bit better than last year. So that's really exciting. Uh, good opportunity to come hunt the state if you haven't before and um, should be exciting for those that are experienced here as well. If you're looking for places to go, um, the Nebraska National Forest is a great location to visit. Um, it's also nice, you'll get into both birds in that location, both prairie grouse and, uh, or excuse me, greater prairie chicken and sharp-tail grouse. Uh, Samuel McKelvey National Forest and Valentine National Wildlife Refuge is a, are two other great locations. Um, definitely don't overlook Nebraska's walk-in access program, uh, Open Fields and Waters. That's where I spend the majority of my time hunting. Uh, 
I think a lot of people tend to forget about it. So um, hopefully I didn't just blow those spots up, but I certainly, there's a lot of really good habitat there, a lot of really good opportunities. And the state currently has over 340,000 acres available um, through that program that otherwise wouldn't be. So check that out with the Public Access Atlas, and then make sure to take advantage of our state's upland slam. That's a fun challenge for hunters to harvest all four Nebraska upland bird species in one season for a chance to win a Browning Max's 12-gauge shotgun. Um, so lots of great opportunities. It's looking good for the state, and I'm excited to witness it firsthand here pretty soon. So, you know, I've hunted national grasslands for prairie grouse, and you mentioned a couple different national forests. And when, you know, a person from up north thinks of a national forest, they're thinking about the big woods, you know, but that's kind of a... Um, and not exactly accurate representation of what what you have in Nebraska. What's uh, explain what uh, somebody's looking at when they're hunting a national forest in the state of Nebraska? That's a really good point, Bob. Um, and in fact, the first time I went out to the Sand Hills or specifically Nebraska National Forest, it, I was just shocked um, because there is there is a lot of woodland. Um, on the outside of it. And actually, I believe it is the largest man-made forest in the country. Um, so what they do is they grow trees for other areas and then they ship them depending on you know needs, where, whether that's timber or fire. Um, but then once you get um, outside, or I should say inside of those areas, it's just vast sand hills where um, most of the vegetation is going to be knee high at the most rolling hills, um, yucca plants, sand everywhere. I mean, it's just beautiful area. Um, so plan on uh, bringing a ton of boots to prevent from sandbars, uh, plenty of water, short sleeves, and look for stock tanks. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, just not to, not to hash on it, but you're not hunting around trees at all when you're in the sand hills. Like it's just, it's a perimeter of um, essentially a, like, an arboretum for lack of a better term, where they, where they grow seed trees. And then you, once you get past it, it's grass as far as the eye can see. Yeah. I, you, I mean, and that's not exaggerating. It is as far as the eye can see. Um, it, it's a beautiful area and um, yeah, I can't, I can't just encourage enough for people to check it out and even just look at pictures if you, if you haven't seen it before, and then I guarantee you'll be planning your trip out here. Cool. All right, let's let's drop down to the neighboring state to the south. Uh, Chad, tell us about Kansas. Kansas. Well, I uh, I live about thirty miles from the Kansas border. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so uh, I, it's the state that I do most of my prairie grouse hunting in. And uh, actually, I, I kind of feel like I'm cheating on Kansas to go to Nebraska and hunt <laughs> early season. But uh, uh, Kansas uh, looking pretty good this year. So so last year. You know, last year we had a lot of uh, carryover cover. Uh, one of the things I noticed last year while hunting was the the cover was was pretty lush last year, and so you know you get this far south and and winter conditions don't really there's not a lot of winter mortality, and so so the winter doesn't really affect prairie grouse populations down this far south, and so it all is dependent upon basically upon spring rains and had pretty good spring rains this year. Uh, the cover's looking good. And the northwest part of the state, which is that 
the, the area in Kansas, you, you can't hunt the southwest part of the state because of the presence of lesser prairie chickens. So it's there's a there's a, an area there that you can't hunt. But north of I-70, uh, you can you can also you can hunt up there. And uh, they had a drought this year, and so things aren't as good up in that part of the state. But the two main parts of the state that that are probably prairie chicken strongholds are the north central part of the state around the Smoky Hills and the Flint Hills. And both of those areas are looking really good this year. Um, had had good summer rain and uh, good brood success. And so it, it's it's looking good. And, you know, when you're talking about chicken hunting in Kansas, uh, you're, you're talking primarily, especially for out-of-state hunters, you're talking Weehaw. And so there's a million acres of Weehaw, and a lot of that is centered in the north central part of the state. Uh, there's some in the Flint Hills region, but I think there's a lot more in the north central part of the state. So uh, if you're going to go chicken hunting in Kansas, uh, probably the north central part of the state would be the best place to do it. All right. Now let's bounce uh, back to the west. Sorry. Now let's bounce out to the west. Another state that has an early opener is the state of Wyoming. The for you know We talk about South Dakota as the pheasant capital of the country. Well, Wyoming is... Um, clearly the sage grouse capital of the United States. Uh, what's the sage grouse and prairie grouse season look like in Wyoming, Marissa? Yeah, thanks, Bob. I am, I'm so excited to talk about Wyoming and especially excited to visit it this year, um, for the first time for prairie grouse. So, um, from what I've, uh, gathered, things are looking up for both sage grouse and sharp tail across the state. Um, however, as we know, I feel like this is going to become a broken rep record. Hunters are going to have to put in an effort and walk to find these birds. Um, that's, that is the same across, uh, every state for, for prairie grouse and part of the fun. Um, that being said, winter conditions across, um, the state are, were variable. However, for sage grouse, there, there were any record snow depths that covered the sagebrush, um, food source for the birds. So that's looking good. And then for sharp tails, high winds did um, open roosting and loafing areas. Um, and so really they fared well through the winter conditions. Uh, temperatures have been hot and dry throughout the spring for both you know, sage, sage brush um, areas and, and sharp tail grouse um, with some areas experiencing drought, but no major hailstorms that historically have uh, really destroyed nest and overall uh, you know, things are really looking good for them. Seasons are going to be open September 19th and then some for uh, sage grouse and then they'll close either the 21st or the 30th based on location. Um, so definitely reference the uh, Wyoming uh, website to check out your rules and regulations before going. And then for sharp tail grouse, it's September 1st through the December 31st. So overall, bird numbers are going to be similar to last season for the great state of Wyoming. Um, if you're going out there for Sharpies, look to Platte, Goshen, I hope I said that right, and Laramie counties. And uh, sage-grouse hunters focus on the southwestern and south-central portion of the state. And just kind of another reminder and a plug, take advantage of the vast amounts of public access opportunities in Wyoming. Uh, I can't wait to see it in person because I just hear about it all the time. And... Uh, I'll leave the Wyoming forecast with this. Uh, prairie grouse are prairie grouse. So walk, take breaks, walk some more. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now we'll, we'll bounce to uh, carp. Uh, carp, you're going you're gonna to have a, a three-state tour for us here. 
Uh, let's start in the northern Dakota, North Dakota. How's the how's the forecast look in North Dakota? You know, it's we're going to sound a little like a broken record because sharp tails are sharp tails, and winter is winter. And it was a winter across Sharptail Range um, and Chicken Range, which we'll get into a little bit more in South Dakota. But they survived. They they got through the winter just fine in North Dakota. And once again, that residual grass from that wet year we had last year was on the landscape. It helped some early nesting get started. And um, North Dakota should be good this year. You know, when you think about North Dakota. The farther west you get in the state, the better the sharptail hunting is going to be. Um, but it starts in about a third of the way across the state, as you, as you, if you imagine just sweeping westward, as you get about a third of the way across the state, which is, you know, the Missouri River is halfway. Just start looking for waterfowl areas, public game, uh, wildlife areas, and don't overlook North Dakota's million acres of plots land, much of which is grazing land, and that's the grass you need. So North Dakota has uh, no shortage of sharp tails, and it's, I think it's going to be a good season up there. You can see the prairie grouse primer for all the details, and, and there's, there's quite a bit of detail in there you're going to want to read. Um, the last point I'll make about North Dakota is it's opening up September 12th, so you have a little time uh, to plan a trip there. It goes through January 3rd. Um, you can't shoot, you cannot shoot prairie chickens in North Dakota. Um, the only place they're found is in the Cheyenne River grasslands in the southeast corner, and that area is in fact close to any prairie grouse hunting. You can't hunt sharptails or chickens there because that is where North Dakota's prairie chickens are. And that, unfortunately, that's close to sharptail hunting for, for the chance that uh, a person could shoot a, a chicken thinking it's a sharptail. So looks good in North Dakota, lots of plots land, lots of public land in North Dakota, especially the farther west you go. Don't hesitate to go to North Dakota. South Dakota, similar, similar report. Winter was rough. Those of us who love pheasants looked at what was going on last winter and thought, oh my God, there's not going to be anything left. Well, that's, that's a different story about what's going to happen with pheasants. And uh, I think we'll, we'll all be pleasantly surprised at that forecast. But talking about prairie grouse right now, specifically sharptails, and prairie chickens in South Dakota, similar story. Winter was not really an issue for these native birds, uh, these native prairie birds. Springtime had plenty of grass. Summer, June especially, was not especially wet. Uh, that helps nesting. And I think South Dakota is going to have a good season. That's where I'm going to open my prairie grouse season up after I go to North Dakota. I'm going to head to South Dakota for about a week up in the northwest quadrant of the state. There's a lot of area, a lot of public land in South Dakota to hunt. Don't overlook ranch lands in the far west. If, you're, if you've got some, some kahunas and you're ready to get out there where it's really wild and you're a long way from anywhere, Western South Dakota is the place where, as we talked earlier in the podcast, you can get lost and you're going to find a lot of birds. Uh, we'll finish up just briefly with my report on Minnesota. Minnesota did not conduct any prairie chicken let counts this year due to COVID-19. 
Minnesota's prairie chicken hunt is a draw. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't draw this year. That makes three years in a row. The hunt is fairly popular. It is residents only, and it's all it all occurs up in that north in the northwest quadrant of the state. There's about 12 units up there. It's a week-long season. Sharptails should be good. Sharptails, for the most part, are hunted in far northwestern Minnesota. A few leks were counted there. Once again, residual grass was good. It looks like there was a good hatch according to somatic total evidence we saw on the landscape and from the game managers. So if you're willing to get up to Northwestern Minnesota and there's a lot of public land up there, there's especially there's good WMAs up there. There's big country and a lot of good grass management. You can do well on sharp tails. And uh, that's gonna be the third the third, that's planned to be the third round of my prairie grouse September uh, after South Dakota and North Dakota. So that, that's sort of the, that's sort of the scoop I see uh, across the Northern Plains here for, for especially for sharp tails. Mostly it's going to be that central South Dakota. If you just take a, take a big circle and plop it pretty much in the middle of South Dakota, that's going to be that centered on that, oh, I don't know what the radius would be, probably a hundred mile radius circle that's just the smack dab middle of South Dakota is prairie chicken country. That's where you can get chickens in addition to sharp tails. So that's sort of what I got on those three states on the Northern Plains. You talked about uh, the Cheyenne National Grasslands in Southeast North Dakota where you can't hunt um, sharp tails because of the existence of prairie chickens there. And I was thinking, how, how confident are you, uh, after 37 seasons, Carp, when it, when a bird gets up, prairie chicken or a sharp tail that you can identify it quickly on the wing between those two birds? I, I, I am a very confident that I could identify them, but I am not confident enough that if I were in an area where sharp tails, let's say sharp tails were legal and prairie chickens were not, I wouldn't shoot because I wouldn't be a hundred percent positive. Now there's, there's ways to tell, but the last thing I'd want to do is shoot right. what I wouldn't. And that's, that's why many of these places have such rules. Now it's interesting in Minnesota, the prairie chicken country in Minnesota, and we can talk a little bit about that if we want, is south of highway, is is in the zone of, of Minnesota, south of Highway 2, the high line that runs all across top of Minnesota, top of North Dakota, into Montana. South of Highway 2 is not open to sharptail hunting in Minnesota. The sharptail hunting is north of 2. Well, the prairie chicken hunting is south of Highway 2. There, the sharptails are making some inroads in that country south of Highway 2. So if you're one of those lucky prairie chicken hunters in Minnesota, you can actually take sharptails in that in your prairie chicken zone because people just aren't quite trusted enough to be able to tell the difference. So that's what I always say. I mean, I've hunted them for 34 years, but to me, they, they have similar chuckles when they flush and you get excited and there's just enough hesitation that that if if they're both if they're both legal where I'm at, i.e., if I'm in central South Dakota, northwestern South Dakota, where there's still there's there are a few chickens, 
I'm going to shoot and see what I got. But if only one is legal where I'm at and I, and I know the other is there, I'm probably not going to shoot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, well, it's a similar reasons why you can't hunt, uh, uh, prairie chickens in southwestern Kansas too, Chad, because uh, right. the lesser prairie chickens and, you know, honestly, it, it, lessers and graders are very difficult to tell the difference. Uh, I, I would say almost impossible almost for a, someone who's not a biologist to tell. Right. And prairie chick, greater prairie chickens and sharp tails, you get, after experience, you get a pretty good idea you know there's a little bit more white in the sharp tails and I've, clearly the the sharp tail versus the square tail on the chicken but trying to do that in a split second when a bird flushes and if you know frankly they mix together sometimes too yeah and it's um it's a real real challenging um deal and, and i didn't ask the obvious question how um how difficult is it to distinguish a hen pheasant from one of these prairie birds. And, you know, I think for some, for folks that are going to take up prairie grouse hunting this year, you know, obviously always err on the side of caution. There's no sense in taking a shot at something, you know, it's a first rule of, of hunter safety. Don't ever take a shot at something that you don't hundred um, percent. You can't identify um, over time. You know, it's been my experience that, I don't know, Marissa, you're not in your head. Maybe three flushes of a prairie grouse, and you get this sense of pretty quickly the difference in the flush between a hen, a prairie chicken, and a sharp tail. Just and and the biggest piece is just the wing beats, in my mind. It's just, you know, it, there's a they just you see it three times and you can instantly know the difference in the flush. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, three sounds like a, a good number too, because I know that that was a, a really big fear of mine when I first started prairie chicken hunting, because the area that I go to, um, there is vegetation in the area that can hold pheasants as well. And it's amazing how quickly your mind and, and your eye, how you can train it to now when I have a flush, I instantly look at the tail. Um, and maybe that's why I miss so much because then I'm behind. <laughs> like we'll blame it on that. Um, but I do. I instantly start looking at certain things for that identification, and it's pretty remarkable how quickly you can do things before taking a shot. Um, yeah. But I know that there was plenty of times when I first started hunting prairie grouse that um, I, I wouldn't take a shot because I just wasn't a hundred percent sure. Um, and it is always a good idea to to wait there'll be more birds on uh the sage grouse there's really no mistaking a sage grouse flush right chad no no there's not uh when they get up it looks like a some like a pterodactyl or a turkey or something so there's a there's absolutely no doubt when you when you flush a sage grouse Before, that's why they call them bombers I'd, yeah i'd say the one the one thing i look for if i'm in an area that has hand pheasants and like marissa said you can get in areas of of sharp tail country we'll call we'll say sharp tail country that have enough grass that there's pheasants there and i, I saw i saw them last year in far northwestern south dakota and southeastern north dakota and the t the telltale one is as marissa said look at their tail but also listen for the chuckle mm -hmm. both sharp tails and chickens have a chuckle and once you hear it you know what it is <laughs> and if you can hear it you know what you've got also uh, you 
the, the, a cubby is a giveaway too. Usually a lot of the time your prairie grouse are going to be grouped up. And if they're, they're going in a group or in, I call it a popcorn popper, they're just going and going and going. It's, now that, that doesn't mean it's for sure sharp tails, but you've got a pretty good idea. Start looking at their tail, listening for those chuckles. Uh, you know what you've got and start shooting. <laughs> yeah. It, well, before we leave Minnesota, Carp, um, you know, you wrote a wonderful blog about the Cupido wildlife management area that um, folks that contributed to last year's Build a Wildlife Area campaign um, or participated in the public lands pavilion at National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic in Minneapolis um, helped us create. Tell us um, a couple of nuggets of trivia around the name where the name Cupido comes from, and what's so special about where the prairie chickens live in the state of Minnesota? Well, it's, it's a pretty neat story, is, and it all happened um, because of man's impact on the landscape. In in the on the prairie primeval, the only place that uh, that historians think chickens existed in Minnesota was along the southern border. As the plow took over the land and as fire and logging whacked away at forests, we created across much of Minnesota what was ideal prairie chicken country. And one, one of the other chatter Marissa mentioned earlier about millions of birds being harvested for market and shipped east was the same in Minnesota. Nobody knows for sure, but the estimate was around the turn of the century, uh, late 1890s in the early end of the early 1910s that in Minnesota alone uh, three quarters of a million to a million prairie chickens were being shot every year by hunters just by the wagon loads and you can read books like Sinclair Lewis's Main Street from Sox Center Minnesota and about how they would take the wagon out and just hunt and it was prairie chickens mm. so what happened that that the balance tipped a little too much land went into grain and there wasn't enough grass. Forest started coming back instead of being burned and hacked away. And what do prairie chickens need? They need grass. They like grain. They ultimately ended up up in the northwestern part of the state. And it's it's actually, the, if you look at the, the map of where the prairie chicken units are, it's actually the eastern bank of Glacial Lake Agassiz, which is which was is now better known as the Red River Valley, one of the most fertile pieces of farmland in the world, flattest and most fertile. And there's actually what is the beach of Glacial Lake Agassiz. The Cheyenne River uh, grasslands in North Dakota are on the West Bank and glacial or and in Minnesota is the East Bank. There's enough gravel, there's enough sand, there's enough farmland that isn't primed there that that's where the grass the grass was allowed to remain where there's grazing and that's a couple that so that's where minnesota's prairie chicken range is that's also happens to be where the cupid wildlife area is and pheasants forever and bob can tell us a lot a lot more about it but pheasants forever and the minnesota prairie chicken society have had a great relationship and have conserved a lot of land in that quadrant of the state and, and i gotta tell you there there's some magnificent places i mean there's i i don't want to give them some of them away but i will <laughs> if, if you if you go up 
go up east of Crookston, Minnesota, and look, if you've got Onyx, look at your Onyx, and look at some of the country up there. And I challenge you to just go up there in the springtime and you can, or, or late summer when the wildflowers in bloom. And there's places up there in Minnesota where you can walk forever. At like, I'm talking 10 to 20,000 acres of pure prairie. And some of it is pristine. Some of it is as close as you're gonna ever get to seeing what the prairie looked like in Minnesota before we settled this land because there are places up there that have never been under the plow. There are places that have been grazed and that's a lot of what the Cupido is. It was grazed. It's It's been allowed to come back and this great partnership to, to sort of bring that full circle story. Pheasants Forever is so much more than just pheasants. It's prairie chickens, it's pollinators, it's sharp tails, it's white-tailed deer, it's all that upland wildlife. And there's some magnificent places up in that northwestern Minnesota running from, from Breckenridge all the way up to, to Crookston and beyond. And that, that's, that's where the prairie chickens have receded to. They, they have a good foothold there. They have a good stronghold. But a lot of it's thanks to Pheasants Forever, Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society, the Nature Conservancy, all these places that have banded together to conserve these grasslands in that corner of the state. And tell us about the name Cupido. Cupido is the species name. They're, they're every every species, as we know, have a, have have a, 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 a genus and a species name. Both prairie chickens and sharp-tailed grouse share the same genus name, Tympanicus. And it comes from actually, if you think of if you think of a kettle drum in a symphony, that's a timpani. And what it is is boom. Timpani is boom. And that's what Tympanicus means, boom. Cupido is the prairie chicken's species name. Phasinellus is the sharptail's species name. And when people ask me, what's your favorite to hunt? I say Tympanicus because <laughs> it gets me out of having to say whether it's prairie chickens or sharptails. <laughs> so simply enough, Tympanicus cupido means booms for love. That's what they do. And that brings us back to what Marissa's talked about of going out with to the lax and watching either of these birds boom in the spring and it, it's it's spectacular so that's that's what cupido is it love yeah booms for love and that's the new name of a wildlife management area open this season to everybody cupido wma in western minnesota and a lot of our members and partners help make that happen um all right now let's bounce uh all the way west to I, I guess I would consider this the sleeper state for upland bird hunters. Uh, I, I think it is. It, yeah. it's, it's a sleeper state for a lot of different species. Uh, I've got a buddy who lives in Pocatello who's told me all about uh, the birds that he hunts out there. And you can in Idaho, you can pretty much hunt anything from quail to pheasants to huns to chuckers to sage grouse to short tails. It's a, it's a pretty impressive state, and you don't really hear a whole lot about it. Well, let's hear about it now, Chad. The state of, <laughs> how's that for a transition? The state of Idaho and rounding out our prairie grouse primer. Well, it's it's pretty much a broken record, just like all the other states. Uh, in, in terms of sharp tails, it was a fairly easy winter. There, there wasn't a lot of mortality. Uh, spring conditions were kind of wet later on in the spring, which which helped brood success. And so uh, the, the season starts October 1st and it's uh, 
it's the eastern tier of counties in, in Idaho that's uh, open for uh, sharp tail hunting. And so you can check the, uh, the prairie grass report for details on that. But uh, the season's going to look pretty good. Uh, they say that it's going to be uh, an average to a little bit better than average season this year. So uh, uh, that's good. And as, as far as sage grouse goes, sage grouse, it, you know, it's more of a southern Idaho thing. Uh, there are two different zones, and, and depending on zone, it's either a seven or a two-day season. Uh, both of them start September 19th, and uh, uh, nest success this year, you know, sage-grouse populations across the West are, are not in great shape, but uh, uh, nesting conditions and nesting success this year in Idaho was was average, hmm. and uh, and so populations are stable. So though the season, uh, such as it is in Idaho, is, is looking uh, pretty good. Uh Excellent. So as, as we wrap up this episode, and I've got two questions for you. Uh, one, we talked about it earlier about prairie grouse gets kind of a bad, um, bad rap on the plate. So I want to hear each of your favorite ways to prepare prairie grouse. And the second question, so we'll do, we'll do the, the, um, the recipes first, but then start thinking about the final question is if you had to give a person one tip, a single tip for hunting prairie grouse, what would that tip be? And we're going to start with Marissa because I know Marissa has a killer prairie grouse recipe in her back pocket, ready to roll. Tell us about that recipe, Marissa. Yeah, I so first I I can't take any credit for the recipe. It's not mine, but um, I'm more than happy to steal it. So <laughs> um, it actually is a, a fellow uh, pheasants forever biologist who um, brought the recipe to us during a camping uh, women on the wing event last year, and it is a prairie grouse in a peach whiskey cream sauce, and it is probably the most delicious meal I've had with wild game ever. Um, pretty big statement, but absolutely accurate. <laughs> I'm hoping to recreate it this year. Um, she also served it with like a peach chutney and it was just incredible over a campfire. Pretty sure that I licked the plate clean, <laughs> no shame. Um, so really looking forward to, to having that again. And, you know, I think, uh, I know that I was told when I first started prairie grouse hunting that, you know, what's, there's no point in it. They're fun to shoot, but beyond that, you know, they, they just taste terrible. And I just, you know, suggest if you haven't tried prairie grouse yet, you know, try to, um, you know, just don't let that limit you. They are fantastic. In fact, it's one of my absolute favorite birds to eat. Um, I would rather have prairie grouse than a lot of wild game. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. just a delicacy in my mind. So um, you know, think about that next time you go out and I'm, I'm not going to steal tips from anybody else on how to prepare it. I'll let them add that to their dish, but, uh, it's, it's well worth it. It's well worth the many miles walked. <laughs> All right. So w once you get a, uh, prairie grouse in the bag this season, we're going to expect the, the recipe blog on the website. P yes, absolutely. And say it again. It's peach whiskey sauce peach whiskey cream sauce even better yep right. it is it's absolutely delicious so i'll make sure we'll, we'll give uh miss lacy clark the credit for this one I, I can't take it so uh but we'll make sure to make this available to our our listeners all it's, right it's delicious uh chad on the other end of the spectrum i know you're <laughs> you're a middle minimalist 
How do you cook in prairie grouse? Well, so, okay. So when I go prairie grouse hunting, I usually camp out um, because I, you know, I, I like to camp out and I'm poverty stricken. So I can't really <laughs> afford a hotel. Uh, and so when I do, I, I usually carry a, a small charcoal grill with me. And uh, my favorite way to, and I like to eat prairie grouse when I'm out hunting prairie grouse. So my, my favorite way to, to, to prepare prairie grouse is, is really quite simple and uh, kind of primal and of the place. I think I, you know, I, it, uh, I, I just, I take the breast and I, I, I put it on the hot coals and I sear it with, I cover it with some salt and cracked pepper. And, uh, I, I sear it to where it is just done enough for me to eat. Mm. Uh, you know, that's, that's one of the things with uh, a lot of, uh, uh, dark meated birds is people just cook it too long. And, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's just like, uh, it's just like beef. You have to, yeah, you have to, to be careful with the temperature. And so what I do is I'll just, I'll slap it on the coals and, uh, salt and pepper on it turn it over put more salt and pepper on it and when it's still when it's pink i, I take it off and i eat it usually with bare hands <laughs> what do you wash it down with oh usually a beer yeah <laughs> all right carp split the difference do you are you a sauce or a minimalist guy when it comes to prairie grouse i'm, I'm a minimum minimalist with chad <laughs> i um Although there is one recipe I like that's that's not minimal, although it's pretty simple. But I always say treat the 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 reason people don't like prairie grouse is they overcook them. Uh, to hearken to Chad's uh, to Chad's insights, you, you really should treat them like a pr- a piece of most prime beef or venison or elk or whatever you want to whatever your favorite red meat is treat them like that and you won't uh you won't be disappointed a couple things i like to do like is um if i if i take a breast off and i'll fillet the breasts and what the the hard part is sometimes breasts are of different one one half of a breast is of different thickness i will take a meat hammer the rough side and i'll hammer that breast out and get it all the same thickness which is probably oh a quarter three-eighths maybe half an inch at that point and then i'll just sear that in a little olive oil and uh garlic in a black cast iron skillet so not that different than putting them on the coals Mm. another option which i've done is you know sous vide is all sort of the style these days and there's a reason it's a great way to to cook meat without under or overcooking it i'll set a sous vide to about 130 which is medium rare for beef and i'll sous vide uh uh, half the breasts, uh, which means sous vide means under vacuum. You're immersing them in water and cooking them in water of that temperature so that you're not overcooking or undercooking. You throw them in a black cast iron skillet or on a grill to brown them, make them look nice, and you're set. So those are really two of the minimalist ways and I that, that I would cook, that I cook prairie grouse, and I, I love eating them. That's, uh, it's, when I pick, when I'm fortunate enough to get a prairie grouse, I have to admit, I, I look, I love the whole experience, but I'm like, man, I want to eat that thing. <laughs> and I do. So I'm right there with you, Carp. I, I, I want to, especially if it's a young of the year bird, Oh yeah. those are the ones that, um, you know, if I got, if I got a young of the year and an older, whether it be sharp tail or prairie chicken, young of the year, I, I, I lean towards the minimalist because they're going to be really mild and delicate. And if it's an older bird, then that wisp 
whiskey cream, peach whiskey cream sauce is calling the name because it, it'll take that, um, um, you know, that flavor of some of the sauce even better. Uh, all right. So as we, as we wrap up this episode, I want to hear your final thoughts, including give our listeners one tip to have a little bit more success this prairie grouse season. And Chad, we'll start with you for this one. <laughs> all right. Well, so I guess my tip is, is, uh, uh, more uh, about the dogs than anything else. So, uh, I, I guess the tip is don't burn out your dogs early. Um, you know, especially early season grouse hunting, uh, temperatures are going to be high. Humidity is going to be high. Your dogs more than likely are not going to be in mid-season condition. You're probably not going to be in mid-season condition. And so uh, you hunt early and then take a nap in the middle of the day. Ooh. Because generally speaking, uh, temperatures, especially this time of year, are going to be climbing into the, you know, the high 70s, 80s, and even 90s. And that's just too hot to run dogs in the middle of the day. Uh, they're not going to be able to. They're not going to be able to smell any any birds because it's going to be hot and dusty and windy. And so it's just uh, it's it's safer for you and safer for the dogs and, and more productive hunting to to concentrate early in the morning. And uh, what I do is especially in early season is uh, I get up at the crack of dawn. I mean, and I'm I'm out there hunting as soon as it's legal to hunt. And then I will run dogs for as long as I feel it's safe. And then then we put them up. And especially on multi day hunts. Uh, it, you know, it, it's big country. Uh, your dogs are going to be logging a lot of ma- miles every day, and uh, it's real easy to, to burn your dogs out. And so you just have to meter yourself, meter your dogs, and keep an eye on temperatures. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, uh, I my dogs get a, a, a bath in a stock tank, every stock tank that I come to, whether they need it or not. You know, you got to keep them cool and you got to keep them wet. And I carry extra water. I, I generally will carry uh, a gallon of water with me on early season hunts, and I'll probably end up using all of it. Yeah, lots of great tips there. It is surprising in most of the places where you're prairie grouse hunting, there there tends to be water sources around, whether it be stock ponds, stock tanks, but um, you can't guarantee it. So you do have to carry a fair amount of water with you, which means yeah, bring the lighter shotgun because <laughs> <laughs> we've talked about it many times. You're going to put on a lot of miles and you'll thank yourself if you can find that that shot, or if you have that shotgun, that's one pound lighter than the other one. Um, all right, Marissa, what's your final thought? Oh, good question. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking while Chad was talking, cause you know, the, the rose hips tip is one that I definitely enjoy. Um, but one other thing that I always try to focus on in the morning is, especially if there's been like a heavy dew or recently a rain is focus on the east side of hills. Um, I always like to to hunt the crest, and as much as sometimes my my thighs protest it, <laughs> I always try and hit the hills. Um, but really, to kind of come down on the east side of it, uh, because they will sunbathe, they'll try and warm up, especially as the season starts to cool off. Um, or in the flip side, if you've got a strong wind, um, to focus on the other side of the hill where they might be trying to um, get a little bit of protection from that wind. Yeah. And so, just kind of keep those yeah. things in mind when you're hunting those areas. Good tip. Good tip. All right, Carp. You have the uh, final word. Tell us your uh, your closing thoughts and tips for, for prairie grouse hunters this season. 
Well, we, we talk a lot about early season because we're sitting here on the precipice of the season, uh, the, the opportunity, everything that's ahead of us. And we, we immediately think about the hot weather and how are we going to, uh, how are we going to beat it? And that's true, but sharp-tailed grouse, prairie chicken hunting, it goes a lot beyond early season and you shouldn't, um, don't limit yourself just to the first week or so as a way to occupy yourself. There's reasons to go, and I find them all the way into October. And that that sort of brings it, and even beyond, but that, that sort of brings me to my first tip, and that is, yes, we hunt them early because we have to sometimes. Because last year when Chad and I were in Kansas, the first afternoon before the hunt started, it hit 102 degrees. So you get up the, the next morning after that, you know it's going to probably hit 100 later in the day. you got to hit it, and so you, you might be done at 9, 9.30. But when I hunt them and it's not so hot, i.e. when I'm up in one of the Dakotas, and man, it might only get to 70 during the day, you do have to parse yourself out as far as your timing. But mid-morning is prime because what happens, bird, th these are birds that are big wide open and they like to be up where they can see. When there's dew on the grass, they're up on the tops, they're on the ridge crests and they can see everything happen. They also don't wanna be in those snowberries and those rose hips and the grass feeding when it's wet. Mid-morning can, can be some of the best hunting because that's when they'll sit. I had, I had a perfect example of it last year, Lark and I, walked up we, we were in kansas mode from kansas we were at the crack of dawn walking these ridge tops and birds were taken off from a half a mile away you know and but what what happened we got up to the crest of the ridge two miles up it was about nine in the morning we worked our way back down and we shot a limit of birds in the snowberries because they had moved in to feed because it had dried off. So mid-morning feeding time, a good time to hunt birds. Uh, my second one is when you, find, when you find a group of birds, either A, don't blow all your shells when they start flying out or reload fast because I call them <laughs> popcorn birds. There's young birds, there's old birds. They're, some are educated, some aren't. They're going at different times. Don't be standing there with an empty gun when the last bird goes. And um, sometimes it's hard to save that last shell when you see birds flushing at 30 yards, but I can almost guarantee you there's one somewhere between you and 30 yards. And if you keep working with your dog, it's going to find it. That's, that's what I got. Yeah, I, like, I definitely like the, you call them popcorn birds. I call them sleeper birds because you're always right. There's, there's one after you've emptied your shotgun, that one bird that all Corp actually watched me do that last year <laughs> in Kansas. I, I think I've heard that story like 16 times, Chad. What happened with that bird? Uh, well, a real simple story. I, uh, I missed one bird twice, broke open my gun, and then another bird got up right in front of me. <laughs> we, have, we have to point out now, I watched it from the other hillside, I, and one flew by me 20 yards away, but I couldn't shoot because Larkin already, I and I, Lark and I already had two birds, so I had to laugh doubly hard at Chad. But he he got him the next day, so well. Don't worry about Chad; he kept at it. Well, the next day is September first in 2020, and that means Chad, you're on your way. 
Your truck is yep. almost packed. Marissa will be seeing you in the sand hills, and then Carp and I won't be too far behind because it is time to go bird hunting. Finally, it's finally here. Uh, I'll I'll point folks once again to if you want to read all the details of these eight states, go to the Prairie Grouse Primer. It's on the homepage for pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org right now. Uh, thanks to our partners at Sportsman's Guide and hashtag responsible recreation. Getting outdoors right now is one of the best ways for all of us as Americans to be socially distant and enjoy the uplands that we care so much about. Take the pledge at responsible recreation.org. Marissa, Chad, Carp, good luck to you all as the prairie season gets underway. I look forward to hearing the stories next week after Labor Day when you're all back in the office. Good luck. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob. All right, folks. Thank you for listening to On the Wing Podcast. Thanks for being a member of Pheasants Forever and or quail forever. If you're not currently a member and say you love prairie grouse, we love prairie grouse too. And our habitat mission creates habitat for sage grouse, for lesser prairie chicken, for greater prairie chickens, and for sharp tails. We invite you to join our cause at pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. Please become a member today. We need you and the birds need you. Thanks for listening, folks. I'm Bob St. Pierre, leaving you with one final thought. Always follow the dog. Something good will rise, and it's now hunting season. So you got a shotgun in your hands, and the grill is going to be hot when you get home. Thanks for listening.